Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, January 31st, and we're talking about amazing quarters from Amazon and Apple. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Evan New. Uh, Evan, we are both shareholders of Apple and Amazon. It's kind of fun to see the earnings reports come in from companies that you know, especially when they're good. Yeah, this was a, a pretty stellar quarter for Apple. I mean, if a company this big posting numbers this impressive, I mean, it was just a complete blowout in every way. They are one of those companies that seems to defy the law of large numbers. You know, the idea that growth gets harder and harder the bigger you get because the denominator gets larger and larger. And yet, to your point, total revenue up 9% to an all-time record, almost $92 billion. That's insane. Right. In other words, they sold over a billion dollars worth of stuff every single day throughout the quarter on average, which is just kind of incredible to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't really put it in those terms for too many other companies. Um, revenue. Well, the only ones you can are it's like Walmart, <laughs> who sells everything, and then ExxonMobil, which sells like gas, which you need for your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Apple's in in pretty good company there. So record on the top line with the revenue growth that we saw. Also, another record on the bottom line, net income over $20 billion, $22.2 billion, or $5 a share. Um, some pretty impressive stuff, especially given that you know the narrative for this company has been the real stalwart business for them. The iPhone business has struggled a little bit in the past couple years compared to the insane growth that we saw um, you know, maybe five years ago. Right. I mean, throughout 2019, every quarter they were posting these, you know, quarterly declines. Pretty much every single report. Uh, so now the iPhone business has returned to growth. Of course, they don't disclose units anymore. Um, <clears throat> but iPhone revenue was up eight percent to fifty-six billion, and that's really dri- being driven by iPhone 11, uh, not the Pro models, because the iPhone 11, like the standard seven hundred dollar one, is really just selling very well. It's been the top selling model every week, according to CEO Tim Cook, uh, and we know we've been hearing lots of you know, kind of third-party reports to that effect, saying that you know this device is selling really well in China, uh, really well in lots. Of you know, pretty much every market around the world. So uh, that that device is just doing really well. And, and now the install base of active devices has now reached uh, 1.5 billion, which is up 100 million from a year ago. Again, just a staggeringly crazy high number for for a company to reach. That's uh, insane market penetration. Uh, we we like to talk about iPhone and we like to check in on the iPhone segment because that's the moneymaker for this business. But most people that have been following this company for a while know that. The future and and really what the company has been focusing on recently is the services segment because it's high margin and it gets them away from reliance on a single product. Let's check on check in on that. Right. So services growth this quarter is actually a little bit more modest. It actually came in slightly below expectations, and we're seeing a little bit of deceleration in in the growth here, both on a year over year and a quarter over quarter basis. But one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these products that they sold over the holidays were you know people giving gifts for the New Year's or holidays and Christmas and things like that. So that's kind of near the end of the quarter. So there might be a little bit of a lag there before these the services monetization kicks in. But all that being said, uh, services revenue did hit a new record of $12.7 billion for the quarter. And there are now 480 million paid subscriptions across all of Apple's platform. 
which is the ninth consecutive quarter where they've added, you know, solid $30 million. And last year they set a goal saying, hey, we're going to hit $500 million at some point in 2020. And now they're saying that's probably going to happen this quarter since, you know, if you add another $30 million, that gets you over 500 And they set a new goal saying we're going to hit $600 million by the end of 2020, which is kind of the same rate of like $30 million a quarter. And I'm also kind of curious of why we're not seeing any acceleration in the growth of paid subscriptions, particularly when you think about how many services they've been launching uh, over the past year or two. So, so for diving into that segment a little bit, I think it's probably worth doing. We talk about services, we talk about the subscription. Um, there's a lot of different stuff that gets thrown in there. We've seen them kind of launch some digital streaming ambitions. We know that some of the Apple Music stuff also plays in there. Is there anything else that's really big in that market? I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. I mean, Apple TV Plus is kind of one of the, the more high-profile services to launch. Uh, of course, they're giving away a free year of it. And I actually asked their investor relations department, they haven't re- responded to me kind of expectedly, <laughs> on whether or not these kind of bundled free subscriptions of Apple TV Plus are included in that paid subscription number. Because, I mean, free trials typically don't count as paid subscription, but if you're giving it away as part of a promotion and the customer did make a purchase and it's being bundled, I'm kind of I'm, I want to know if Apple TV Plus is being included in that number, but you know last year they also launched News Plus, but I don't think there's been a lot of traction for News Plus, so that's I'm not really too surprised that that's not really contributing much. But you also have like things like Apple Arcade, like you mentioned Apple Music, which they didn't give an update. We don't know how many subscribers there are. I mean, last count was 60 million, so there there's a lot of moving parts here, um, and. Unfortunately, there's still also a lot of questions. <laughs> That's why I love reading your earnings takes on Apple, but really your your analysis on almost anything, Evan, because you dig in and you get into some of the nitty gritty, some of the disclosures and the footnotes that a lot of people tend to gloss over. I hope you get an answer on that so we can follow up. But nice to know that you're asking the hard questions <laughs> of investor relations. We appreciate you doing your service over there. Um, Trying. <laughs> why don't we talk a little bit about wearables too? I mean, this this is a business that I think for any other company would be pretty meaningful and a pretty big contributor to the overall direction of the company. Uh, For Apple, it's kind of an afterthought. Yeah, so uh, CEO Tim Cook, he does this really annoying thing where he compares the wearables business to the Fortune 500. And he's he's been doing this for years. And instead of just giving us like a straightforward disclosure of like, oh, this is how much we're bringing in, (laughs) he just uses this roundabout way. So now he says that wearables is the size of a Fortune 150 company, uh, which is another way of saying that revenue over the past year has been about $21 billion. And I mean, that's pretty impressive when you consider the fact that they only started the wearables business in mid-2015 when the Apple Watch first launched, or first shipped. So, I mean, <clears throat> that's only been like five and a half years, and they're already at a $21 billion business. The broader wearables home and accessories segment, which includes wearables, uh, hit $10 billion for the first time. And of course, the bulk of that is these wear- wearables like AirPods Pro, which is suffering from supply constraints because the demand is just so strong. Of course, that's a good problem to have. Uh, Apple Watch Series 3, which is two years old, is still actually selling very well because Apple kept it in the lineup, but then they dropped the price last fall to $200 when they launched the Series 5. And Series 3 is also still under supply constraints because demand is going pretty well. I think just anecdotally, looking at the AirPods product, there was a period immediately after they launched it where I didn't really see too many people using the product. Um, you know, the the people that tended to have them were the early adopters, the people that would be buying a lot of iDevice type stuff, anyways. But they didn't really seem to hit the mainstream. And I think over the last six to twelve months, 
that's totally changed. I see them so much more in the office. I see them so much more on the DC Metro. Um, it seems like that is becoming a bankable product for them in a way that maybe it didn't when it when it first launched. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it did take a little bit of time for the adoption to kind of to you know get to this mainstream phase. But at this point, yeah, I mean, you see them everywhere, and I think we talked about this on a previous show. But like, even kids nowadays are like all about the AirPods, even though they're like one hundred and sixty dollars. But the AirPods Pro are even more expensive. Those are two fifty, and those just launched during the quarter, and people are loving those too. Like, if you read what people are saying about them on social media, and just like same thing, you see them everywhere. And I mean, it's all part of this this growing wearables business. Uh, they also have some Beats products that are wireless wearable devices as well. But overall, I mean, they're just really executing very well on on putting these out there. And even right now, if you go to try to buy AirPods Pro on the website, I think it's like a month delay because they're so backed up. The brilliance of AirPods, I think it just kind of shows how good Apple is with branding because you immediately recognize them when you see someone, whether it's walking down the street or in the office or, like I said, on the metro or something like that. It's like basically an advertisement for the product. You know, they they've done such a good job of making them so easily identifiable um, and so sleek that in the way you might expect for Apple. Um, it's it's hard to miss. You know it when you see it, and it seems like it's finally resonating with customers. It gives them another nice wearables product to be able to tout and show off, and kind of help build up that revenue base. Um, Evan, we cannot talk Apple without also talking about share repurchases. They are pretty much the most aggressive share repurchaser in the market right now. Uh, why don't we check in on their buybacks? So this quarter they bought back 20 billion, which consisted of 10 billion in open market purchases, and then another 10 billion was part of another accelerated share repurchase program. And it's worth noting that they, you know, throughout the quarter, Apple shares were just kept climbing higher and higher, just steadily, just to hit all-time highs, just like just a straight line up there. And they just kept on buying it. They they were not concerned about valuation. They were not concerned about we're buying at all-time highs, which I think is a pretty strong vote of confidence from. From Apple's part. Now, if you look back throughout the year for 2019 total, they bought almost $80 billion worth of stock, which is kind of mind boggling. But then if you go back even further to include 2018, which is right after tax reform passed at the end of 2017, which gave all these companies all these you know, tax savings that many of them are using towards uh, repurchases, Apple has bought back $150 billion worth of stock over the past two years. Again, just mind boggling numbers. Yeah, and you can say what you want about how companies have chosen to use the money that they have repatriated, um, and whether the tax reform did what it was supposed to do. I think, though, you look at that 150 billion dollar number; it's worth emphasizing. You know, they bought back effectively a large cap company, almost a mega cap company, over the last two years in their own stock. Um, and if you look at the chart for Apple over the last couple of years. It's hard to spot a point where any of those share repurchases would have been a bad decision if you're trying to allocate capital, buy shares back at a discount to reward people long term, especially when you consider the fact that shares were up like 80% in 2019. Right. I mean, without getting too into the politics of the tax reform, I mean, companies are going to do what's in their best interest. And if they think that the best thing to do with their extra money is to buy back shares, that's what they're going to do. But I mean, Apple's at least. You know, <clears throat> rich enough, they have so much money that they can at least invest in the U.S. economy at the same time as they're buying back this insane number of shares. So, Evan, so much of the narrative over the past week, two weeks or so, has been the coronavirus and all of the companies that have exposure to China and how that might affect their business. Do we have any sense of what management thinks about that, or or any update there? 
Right. So since Apple's supply chain, like many consumer electronics companies, is very heavily concentrated in China, uh, all their suppliers are there, it's where production is, uh, this is a pretty important risk for them. Uh, so they do face kind of a lot of uncertainty with regards to their supply chain because of the coronavirus. Uh, just for as an example, the largest iPhone production facility in the world is only about a five to six hour drive north of Wuhan, which is the epicenter of the outbreak. So Cook said that they do have some suppliers in that city, but they also have alternative sources for pretty much all of the components. So, of course, there's some risk, but, you know, we know that they're diversified, so they have, you know, some backup plans, contingencies they can they can lean back on. Uh, he said that they're also donating, donating to groups that are fighting the virus and trying to contain it. They're also taking a lot of operational precautions, like limiting travel. They've closed, I think, two stores now at this point. And they're they're doing a lot of deep cleaning of the stores. They're checking employees regularly, so that you know they're they're trying to do as much as they can to mitigate this risk. But at the same time, there's a lot they can't control, right? So they're you know when they provided their revenue guidance for the first quarter, they provided a broader range than they typically do, uh, just to kind of accommodate for that uncertainty. So they're calling for revenue of 63 to 67 billion in the first quarter. And you know again, we'll kind of have to see how this plays out because this whole situation is rapidly evolving. We really harped on the fact that no matter how you slice it, the the quarterly results were pretty darn strong for this company, and shares were up immediately after they reported. I think it's worth looking again at the market cap for this business because uh, a lot of people really marveled at the fact that you know okay they hit one trillion, and there were the natural concerns of you know how big can a company get after hitting that one trillion figure. Uh, their current market cap is like one point three seven trillion, so um, they have already in the time since passing one trillion added another thirty seven percent or so. Uh, I know Microsoft uh, is about one point three trillion right now, so it doesn't seem like passing the one trillion mark has gotten in the way of these companies continuing to grow. I think I saw a stat today that um, Apple is now 5% of the S&P 500, which is only the third time in history that any company has ever done that. I think the first was like Microsoft, and then there was Exxon at some point. And now Apple is 5% of the entire S&P 500, which is also just kind of insane to think about. And by the same measure, that means Microsoft is also about 5%. And so yeah, it's getting pretty close. <laughs> if, if you own the S&P 500, about 10% of that is going to be driven by Apple and Microsoft alone. Um, we are actually going to switch gears and talk about another company that just joined the Trillion Dollar Club, Amazon, in a second, and their most recent quarterly results. I just want to give our listeners a heads up before that, though, that we have a special 50% off discount for our Stock Advisor service. If you want to check it out, go to if.fool.com. Get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every month, Best Buys Now, and a whole lot more. That's if.fool.com for access. Um, I teased it before, Evan, but uh, Amazon back in the Trillion Dollar Club. We are now at the point where we've got four mega tech companies with $1 trillion market caps? Yes. So, Amazon briefly touched a trillion last year. And then, you know, I think there was some earnings release and they came down again. So, they pulled back and went back under. And now, with this strong earnings release for the fourth quarter, they're back above. So, now, yeah, as you mentioned, there's now four U.S. companies that are trillion dollar companies. We've got Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Amazon. The rich keep getting richer, it seems. We've, we've talked about how strong these companies are and how a lot of them kind of operate on an ecosystem uh, strategy or they have some element of their business. Business that has recurring revenue, and that allows them to defy a lot of the things that typically befall big companies um, because they continue to get all of the customer activity coming in. Um, there are those lingering concerns about whether uh, they may be targeted for you know anti-monopolistic type stuff down the road, antitrust type stuff down the road. 
TBD. The immediate story with all of them, though, is they continue to succeed. They continue to build products that people love to use, and their financials follow. In the case of Amazon, net sales up 20% year over year. Pretty impressive. Free cash flow up over 30% year over year. Um, the the maybe the dud in this report was that operating income was only up two percent for the quarter, and and I think that really has to do more with where they're investing their money uh, rather than the long term trajectory of the business. Right. I think Amazon investors are very familiar with you know how Amazon runs their business, which is they're constantly investing in. Business and future growth and infrastructure and things like that. And in this case, the the top priority right now is just the one day shipping and all the kind of logistics and infrastructure necessary for that. But I think it's clearly showing that by doing that, they're really accelerating sales growth and getting more people to just keep buying on the platform because you're getting stuff the next day. I mean, I did all my holiday shopping on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and if you want a sense of how that affected the financials in North America, sales up 20%, but operating margin shrinking from 5% the year prior to about 3.5%. That comes with them heavily invest, investing in their supply chain and their infrastructure in order to get those packages to people when they want them. Um, looking at some of the other big segments for them, AWS sales up 33% for the quarter. This is their cloud infrastructure business, the industry-leading service that they offer. Uh, their full-year margins were about 26%, down slightly from where they were in 2018. Maybe a little bit of that is the pinch of competition as Microsoft and Google continue to grow. Right, and I mean, as usual, AWS is really the the main profit driver in this business, which is has been for many many years. So you know, no surprise there. But AWS alone represented about two thirds of total operating income. Which you know that that cloud business is just continues to just dominate. It seems like it might be joined by some other profitable segments, though. The the classic way that Amazon breaks down its business is North America, AWS, and international. If you're looking for operating income, but they also give you revenue breakdowns for some of their other businesses, and they have four segments with thirty percent growth or higher. AWS is one of them. The other ones are third party seller services, subscription services. And other and others, for the most part, they're advertising services. So, with all of these, you have generally pretty high margin businesses that are growing at over 30% year over year. Um, and if you look at their contribution to overall revenue, Q4 2018, these segments combined for 39% of revenue. This quarter, it was 42%. So, they are becoming a larger and larger piece of the pie because they are growing faster than the core e commerce business, even though the e commerce business is growing 20% year over year. Um, but we're not really seeing the impact on the overall financials right now because of those heavy investments that they're making on one day uh, and same day shipping, and because the international segment continues to be a little bit of a money pit for Amazon. Right, I think they're they're putting a bunch of money into like India and some of these emerging markets, which yeah, those investments will take quite a long time to pay off. But I'm sure that they will eventually. I mean, the advertising business is also pretty exciting because you know there's that famous quote from like many years ago where. Then Google CEO Eric Schmidt said that Amazon was its biggest competitor, which is just because if you're looking for a product to buy, you just go straight to Amazon nowadays, and that's really what's driving a lot of the growth. And I think there's been, you know, some consumer behavior change in that, like that's happening more and more often. Like instead of going to Google and 
searching for something that you're interested in buying, you just go straight to Amazon. And that's just driving this advertising business like crazy. Yeah, the marketers would look at that and say, when people go to Amazon, they have purchase intent. There are times where people on Google in the search results are looking a little bit more for information. They might also be looking for products. But if you're on Amazon, you are there to buy something. And I think marketers know that. I think people trying to buy ads know that. And so, it's a very lucrative ad business for them to operate. Uh, one of the more staggering numbers for me from this report was the check-in on Prime membership. Right. So they said that they have 150 million paid Prime members worldwide now. And to put that number and kind of the growth into perspective, Prime was first launched in 2005, <clears throat> and they didn't say until 2018, uh, early 2018, that they hit 100 million members. So it took 13 years to get the first 100 million, and then less than two years to get the next 50 million. <laughs> so like. You know that growth is just exponentially. It's like an S curve growth right there. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it would be tempting to look at a company like Amazon and say so much of the growth has been realized. I think that Prime membership is a great example where yes, a lot of the growth has been realized, but they've been able to add so many people to the platform uh, that it's still pretty meaningful. And once you bring those people in, they start interacting more with the e-commerce side. They start. Signing up for digital services. There are all these things that they can start tacking on and adding to the overall value for that individual customer. Uh, I saw this great tweet from uh, frequent IF contributor Brian Feroldi talking about all these different times where people might have said, Oh, you know, I, I missed the boat on Amazon. And <laughs> when maybe when he said it himself too, kind of mar- marking that on this chart over time. And you could have bought fairly recently and still been sitting on pretty good gains. I think that's the case for a lot of these big tech companies. You know, we tend to think of them as being too big to put up good results, and yet, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Alphabet as well. You know, they have these killer cloud businesses that are growing really fast, and they're super high margin. So even though they're huge as a company, there's still a lot of growth ahead of them. You know, back when I was starting my <coughs> career in, as a stockbroker in financial services, I had Amazon at sixty dollars back in like. 2008, 2009, kind of around the time of the Great Recession, and I like sold out for a small profit, and I've always kicked myself. I mean, I ended up buying back in like a year or two, maybe three, you know, some point recently, but still always beat myself up because I, I let it go at sixty bucks. <laughs> it's like two thousand dollars. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of the piano story too, Evan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was it? The uh, the million dollar piano for for your dad? My um, parents. Back in 1986, my dad wanted to buy Microsoft stock, and my mom said, no, we should buy the kids a piano, and they ended up buying the piano. My dad ended up buying Microsoft stock the next year, but yeah, if he had basically bought it that when he first wanted to, that piano is probably, actually, it's actually probably more closer to like $5 million plus at this point, because... I mean, it, this because Microsoft is also at all time highs. They reported a strong quarter, also. <laughs> well, that's the but power, he still, he, he, and he still owns that <laughs> that, that position that he bought in 1987 today, and it's enormous. <laughs> well, that's that's the power of compounding, and I think why we say so often, you know, the second best time to invest is now, the best time to invest is yesterday, uh, with a lot of these companies. But all to say, it's it's not too late to hop in with a lot of these businesses. They're putting up great results, but they continue to grow very quickly, and they are market leaders that are going to be very difficult to unseat. Right, and I mean, Amazon knows it all ties together. I mean, this one day shipping stuff is really driving Prime membership growth, and Prime members are just going to keep keep using it. I mean, I think they said that they were allocating 1.5 billion in the fourth quarter to invest in one day delivery. Uh, they ended up <coughs> investing slightly less than that, uh, and now they're expecting another billion in Q1. So, I mean, they're they're definitely in it for the long game, and it is 
you know they're executing very well. It's and it's all starting to pay off. All right, uh, so we're going to wrap our company discussion there. Uh, I tell folks every week on the podcast that if they leave us a five star review, I will read it on the air. We have a couple ones uh, from the past week coming in. This one from Brady and Gabe's parents. As someone who listened to every episode of Market Foolery, Motley Fool Money, and Rule Breaker Investing, I was surprisingly slow to embrace the IF podcast. That said, the new cadence and maturity of the hosts and the continued development has me hooked. Keep up the great work. I'm a net promoter of all your work. And I appreciate that. I think uh, after reading this review, I went back and listened to some old episodes that I've done. I've been podcasting now for The Fool, I think, for four and a half years. And uh, the early episodes didn't sound great, you know. Evan, I think you did a lot of the heavy lifting back then when we were doing some of those shows together. Um, and I appreciate all the listeners that have kind of bared with us as we've gone through and continued to hone the craft and tried to work to bring you better and better content. Um, it just as another case in point for some of the stuff we're trying to do. I mean, over the last year, the sound quality with our remote guests has gotten better and better and better. So much of that is thanks to the work of Austin Morgan and getting some uh, great mics out there to our folks like Evan that are remote, having them record locally. Right rather than doing things over Skype. So we're trying to make things better all the time. I want to hear Evan as well as I can when we're doing these shows together, because uh, I know he can hear me crystal clear when we record later. So uh, appreciate everything that we're doing there, and I appreciate the love. Um, we also got a great review. This might be one of my favorite reviews of all time from Q Creator or Creator, hard to say. But uh, Creator writes in, I became a basketball fan back in the 80s. This was a time when the Celtics-Lakers rivalry ran hot, and I rocked the fanny pack because it was so useful and socially acceptable. I knew the teams, the rosters, the bench players, the strategy, and the tactics employed and marveled at the play. But the thing that made all of that understanding possible for me was my friends who were also fans and the courtside commentary of the legendary Chick Hearn, their Lakers radio and TV commentator who shared his decades of experience and made every game, even the hard losses, more fun. The industry-focused team delivers the same type of energetic, fun, and expert commentary on business topics every day. This makes it possible to keep up to date with my favorite companies and learn stunning amounts on industries I never knew or cared about before. Entertaining and educational, the IF team is fantastic at putting together professional quality content that outstrips any of the other discussions I have found in the financial media. I can't recommend them more highly. Fanny packs, however, not recommended. Maybe they'll make a comeback next season. Uh, I love that note so much. Uh, that's a it's a great metaphor, and it's and it's really awesome to uh, to hear that. That's the kind of impact that we can have on folks. I will say to that, I'm seeing people rock fanny packs in Washington D.C. So I don't I don't know what things look like out there in Colorado, Evan, but it seems like fanny packs might be on their way back over here. I don't think they're. I I, I don't see them here. But my uh, I have to admit, my wife bought one a couple years ago, and I. Kind of made fun of her a little bit for. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed over the last couple months, we're seeing a lot of the stuff from the '90s kind of start to work their way back in, you know, like kind of the big clunky feel of shoes and the acid wash jeans and baggy it's visco fits. Visco girl stuff. The visco girl <laughs> stuff. You seen? You heard all the stuff with the kids and the visco and like. It's a bunch of '90s stuff. Basically. Yeah, it's and it's back in vogue. So I, my girlfriend has a fanny pack and she loves it. She takes it on hikes with her all the time. I haven't seen her use it so much out, but I think we're going to see more and more of those coming. Um, and we've got one more review that I want to wrap up with. This is actually a follow up on a, on a review that we got a couple weeks ago that we talked about on the air. This one's from Ebony, um, and listeners may remember uh, when we read the review from Ebony a few weeks back. She said that she didn't love the new theme song. She went back in and edited that original post to say that she listens to her podcast usually at two times speed. After we talked about it on the show, she slowed it down, and she said, you know what? The new intro sounds pretty good. So look at that. Austin Morgan 
making things happen for us. Um, and and that's, a, that's an interesting point. I think a lot of people listen to shows at advanced speeds. I don't do that, uh, maybe just because I'm a patient individual or I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know. But, um, but Austin, I don't know. How, how do you listen to your shows? Uh, not at two times speed. And I can definitely confirm that the intro is not meant to be played at two times speed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, I, you know, I'm amazed that people can digest what I say at two times speed. I feel like I mumble and I talk way too quickly to make that happen. So if even he's able to make that happen at, at two times speed, power to her. Um, but I'm going to try to make it work for people at one and a half times speed. I know there are some folks out there. So if I ever talk too fast, just write in. I'll slow down a little bit for you guys. Um, but it always delights Austin to know that people are liking the new intro. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I'm also a big fan of our new outro theme song, which we've been getting a ton of love for, Checks and Balances. Because today is a Friday, we're going to be taking things out with that. Evan, thanks for hopping on today's show, checking in on Apple and Amazon. Always love chatting with you. Thanks for having me. All right, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or you can get additional investing content over on our YouTube channel. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. A couple edits he's going to have to work through, but you guys aren't going to hear them because he's so good at his job. Um, and like I mentioned, we're going to be taking things out with Burke Ingrafia, full-time fool, and his song, Checks and Balances. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account. It's parenthetical. The money I'm made of is theoretical, so in theory I've got it good. My fat wallet is on a diet. My balance sheet is lopsided. My income statement is keeping silent, but let's keep one thing understood. I need checks. I need balances. Life's a mess. With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank, I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess with financial challenges Checks and balances when things get tough Do you do it for money or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on Triple coupon, soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess 
With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? Skate always has a headache trying to get something for free. None more wiser is the miser, always lives in misery. I own a bank, I call him Piggy. Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy, cracked him open. What a pity, his inner life was pitiful. I need checks. I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love?